Hi, Sunita. Hi, Dr. Jean. I'm so pleased to have you here. I was so excited when you told me you had written a book, The Power of Belonging, and I wanted you here to discuss it and particularly to connect it with your interest in racial justice. So to those of you who are listening, Sunita Simi is a global executive coach providing astute coaching services to executives all over the world. And she has taken that knowledge and her own interest in belonging and her interest in racial justice and put it together in a book. And she's going to share that with us. So first though, let's learn about her. What I'd like you to do, Sunita, is tell us about your background, how you grew up and what led you into the interest in racial justice and belonging. Thank you, Dr. Jean. Yes, so happy to share. I, I think it's a very long and deep story and it probably started even before I was born. My parents were immigrants from India. They moved to London in the mid fifties. They were one of the first Indian families from Punjab to come and move um, to the North London area. From where uh, again? The North London, they came from Punjab, the North of India. Okay, okay. So they're from the Punjab region. Um, I think what was interesting is they moved eight years after the bloody partition of 1947, when India was divided uh, and became India and Pakistan, and the British left uh, India where they had ruled. And um, I, I think it, that was quite vital to the story in a way, because I remember when my mum telling me when she arrived in England, how disappointed she was because they had been ruled by the British. They had such a image of the British. And the reality was England was very cold and not just in the weather, the people were very cold. And there was a reminder um, to the immigrants coming from abroad, um, especially from at that time from India, which was they were not welcome and they were not wanted. So, I grew up in London. I was born in 1966. Um, and I grew up at a time in London where there was a lot of anxiety on both sides. So there was a general influx of immigrants from the West Indies, from India. And then in the mid 70s, Idi Amin kicked all the Indians out of Uganda. Um, and these these people who left Uganda had businesses, they had livelihoods, and they were just told to leave, and they just left. And a lot of them came to to London, um, and a lot of them they are, they were not Punjabis, they were they were Gujaratis, which is a different uh, t uh, population. They live in a different area, come from a different area in India, and they a lot of them actually moved into our area, maybe to the London area. And I think this almost heightened the anxiety for so the majority. I, let me make sure I get this. So your parents moved, were immigrated to London and they did this by choice. Yes. Okay, so they immigrated 
and they discovered that London, the Londoners were much colder than they had thought. They thought in a way they were coming to a sort of a homeland because they had been raised under British rule. Is that correct? Absolutely. And instead of coming to a homeland, they discovered they were foreigners. It, exactly. Okay. So meanwhile, Idi Amin, is that who kicked them out of Uganda? Yes, I remember the rule of Idi Amin. Yes, and I remember when that happened. So he kicked out all of these Indians. And so now we have this other group of people who had been raised in Uganda who had thought that was their homeland, even though they were. So now we have mm. two separate groups of Indians mm. from different mm. places who either were mm. forced or uh, voluntarily came into this mm. neighborhood in London. Mm. Is that what you And I just want, absolutely. And I just wanted to say as well that, you know, when I say my parents voluntarily came, I think it is true of a lot of immigrant stories. They came to better their lives. They yeah. came because they knew that the education system was good in England. They came for, I suppose, to future-proof their children's life. Um, but it is interesting, even as I'm telling you now, because I'm, you know, you have these Punjabi immigrants, you had immigrants from you, uh, people who were kicked out of Uganda, you had people from Pakistan. And what was interesting was for the indigenous population, the majority population, they had no idea about the diversity within those groups. Now, that, you know, the majority population, you mean Londoners? What the white 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 Londoners, yes. Yeah, white, white population. Okay. So they had no idea what the difference was between a Bangladeshi, a Pakistani, an Indian, or somebody wow. who was kicked out of Uganda. And so there was a racial slur that was used at that time, which was called Paki. Paki? Paki. P-A-K-I. Which is short for Pakistani. Right. But it was it was a very negative term. I mean, it wasn't an endearing term at all. And I think that, that you know, um, growing up in London, what was really tough was this, so the, 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 the influx got heightened in the, in the mid seventies when Idi Amin, as I said, um, kicked all the Indians out. Um, of Uganda and in our area which was a white area before became very populated with Indians from Uganda and slowly slowly more Indians started moving in as more Indians started moving into our neighborhood more anxiety crept in mm -hmm. and I just remember that word Paki it was the ultimate insult it was the last thing a friend would say to you a white friend would say to you and there was no comeback on that on that word and you we i really felt as a growing up that i was i i didn't really fully fit in into my indian culture i didn't fully fit into the white culture but there was a real sense that we were different and there was a real sense that we weren't welcome and we weren't wanted. And this wasn't our country. I was reminded of that very often, you know, go back home. And, but this was my home. 
Oh, wow. And now what age are we talking about? How old were you when you're going through this? I was 11. Ah. I was 11. I, I remember it starting even when I was younger, but I think it was perhaps in England, by the time you're 11, you start um, high school. So this is where I think you're not as protected as you are in maybe the primary years of school. Um, and I really, you know, it's really interesting as, as just as I'm as we're talking and I'm reflecting of this, this feeling of just never feeling quite like the in the in group. And I remember my, my, my mother saying to me, when you're an outsider, all you want to do and all you want to be is an insider, which was really interesting. So there was a lot, there was a lot going on for them as well. And then for us, because we were second generation Asians, uh, and they were desperate to hold on to their culture and we were stuck in two worlds. Wow, that's painful. So was there a feeling of not good enough along with the exclusion? You didn't belong, but did you also feel something's wrong with us or else we would be accepted? I think it's an excellent question. I, I think that's something which was so unconscious but you always felt you weren't good enough. Yeah. You weren't, and, and I was, I'm, I mean, compared to my, my siblings, I was lighter skinned. So I'm sure my sister and my brother got more racial abuse because the darker your skin, the more racial abuse you got. People sometimes didn't know where I was from, but then they would still insult you. They would call me a Greek bitch or a Spanish slut. It was, uh -huh. Yeah, it was the hatred of the other. Um, and in an, in an historical um, sort of scene, just to set the scene for you, was this anxiety caused a real rise and peak in, in, in a party called the British, the BNP, the British National Party and the National Front. And these were extreme right parties. And you have to think about children, Indian children or non-white children watching TV and just looking at these skinheads. They were called skinheads because they shaved their hair uh, really like all off and it was so they could see the skin. And it was a reaction to the immigration, to the, um, to the government. To fear. Okay, wait, this, I'm, I'm getting confused. The skinheads, we have skinheads in this country. I don't know if they still exist. They've morphed into the Proud Boys and other white supremacist groups. But the skinheads were the counterculture white folks who were white guys. Is that the same? Is the very yeah. same? Okay. Yeah. And so extreme, extreme parties, extreme right wing party. Yes. And so when you said they were reacting, they were reacting in fear or your community was reacting to them in fear. That's what I missed. I think there was something about fear across the system in the country at that time. And I think 
the BNP party, I mean, now with, 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 with what I know about, you know, racial justice, I think that a deep, there is deeply rooted fear, but it doesn't mean that you have to manifest it into hatred. Um, but I did see anxiety on both sides. And I don't, and I, and I also saw that people joined the, the movement, not really knowing what it was about. Join the skinheads, is that the movement? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. In yeah. actual fact, I, I, it's one, one thing I'm, I'm, I mentioned, um, I wrote about this in, in the first book that I wrote. Uh, I had a really good friend at school, um, and I think I was about 13, and he was uh, a white boy, and very, very uh, interesting to talk to, very reflective. And I remember one day he came into our maths lesson, and he had a skinhead cut. And he was holding, or he had some sort of, he had the Union Jack, the flag of England or Britain around his neck. And he, we had been very friendly. And this time he didn't even say hello to me. Whoa. And very naive, yeah, and very naively, I said, oh, hello. Uh, hello, hi, you know, how are you? And he was not, not talking to me at all. And he sat behind me in class and the class started. And I wouldn't let it go. I just thought, what's going on? I didn't, it didn't click in my mind that he had become a member of this party. And I turned around and I said, you know, what's, what's, why are you saying hello to me? What's wrong? And he just said, I mean, I don't want to repeat it on this podcast, but he told me, you know, get lost, Packy, go home. And yeah, I was about 13. Oh. 13 then and it, and I just remember being so upset and my and the maths teacher said Sunita turn around you you you've always got your back to me you know of course you just because I, I was turning back to talk to my friend and I was so upset I felt like I had been slapped and I remember saying to the teacher but Mr Rogers he just called me a packy and he said nothing Oh God, so you got slapped twice, basically. Exactly. Oh, that's so horrible. And you had no frame of reference, no place to put this, no way to understand it. No, because I, because I think also my family, um, they were very fearful. And I just thought that would add to the fear or it would just confirm all their fears about white people. Um, so I just, yeah, I didn't, I Did would say I didn't have them. a frame of, sorry, you, go ahead. You didn't tell your family? No. Was there anyone to tell? I think I, I could have talked to my sister, but you know, she also had, I think it was a very shameful experience. It was a very shameful 
and lonely experience. I remember my brother saying to my mum when he was seven, let's go home, mum, please let's go home, because he had been abused racially. Oh. You know, I hear about the racism in England against the Africans, but I had not heard about the racism against Indians also. And what you're telling me, it was at least it was just as intense and y'all experienced it. And the color in India varies also from light mm. to dark. Mm. And so mm. I could mm. see that I can see that infecting the whole thing. Well, so you didn't so you had to live with that and come to mm. with that. Mm. So jump us from this literally traumatic experience to how you started gaining perspective on what was happening. So I, I, I think these early experiences shaped my interest and curiosity into racial identity, racial justice, in-group, out-group, inclusion, exclusion, although I wouldn't have used those words at that time. And so I studied psychology at university and my thesis, so this is 1983, my thesis was about how do minority groups in England perceive each other? Ah, internalized oppression. Exactly. So and talk about that, that's fascinating. So yes, and that, which was interesting. So the, the, there was, I think I used a sample, a Pakistani group sample, Indian group sample, uh, a white groups, was it a white group or a non-English? Non so I think I used um, Irish. And then I also used a, the, uh, uh, a black population. And the black population came out the worst. They were perceived the worst out of all the minorities. But you see this, the, some of the responses I remember then were scathing about each other. They almost were, like you said, the inter internal racism was stronger or as strong as the racism that they felt, the cruelty. Wow. So if you're doing your thesis on this and you discover you I'm, you suspected it already, I'm imagining else you wouldn't have chosen it for your thesis, right? Mm. So mm. it was worse than you had even thought? Yes. Exactly. It was worse than than even I had thought. Just curious, how did your committee receive that? Because I'm sure some of your committee members, your faculty committee members were Englanders. They were really interested. And I actually remember I never, never pursued it. But I remember my supervisor wanted us both of us to do a PhD. Uh, but I, I didn't, I, I couldn't afford, or my parents couldn't afford for me to study further. Um, but it, he was fascinated by that topic because hadn't hadn't really been looked at in 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 1983 about how mm -hmm. on on that level how minorities perceived other minorities. Right. Okay, so you got support from them at least then. It's yes. Like nobody said to you, oh, you can't say that. Oh, don't do that. 
you were, you were able to tell the truth. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think I was very lucky where I went. I went to a place in, in the north of England, in the north of uh, England, yes. And I was very lucky with the teaching staff because it wasn't a big uh, institution. We got a lot of attention and they were very caring, interested people. And race was a big topic there. Yeah. Yeah, 1983 it would have been. Yes. Okay, so you did your thesis. Take us to us your interest in belonging. Your professional you. intellectual interest in belonging. Obviously, all along you've been interested in it, right? As an 11 year old child, you were interested, but it became something for you to study. Take us there. So I have been um, running workshops and working in this field, you know, which in, in, in Europe they call it DNI, it's called DEI, it's called all sorts of, you know, things, or sometimes they call it safety, inclusion, and belong. But I've been working in this area. Say that for, a little bit more slowly. Say, say the sorry. So um, I've been working in this area, uh, DNI or DEI. B or SIB, safety, inclusion, and belonging, whatever you want to call it. Um, well, let's explain what DEI is. Say the word. Sorry. Yes. DEI, Diver diversity, equity, inclusion. There inclusion. we go. Okay. Um, I've been working, you know, I, I would say I've been working informally all my life, but in an, in an organization, um, I been while I was working for organizations in this field, even in the leadership field, I noticed that teams and when people had a very strong bond and a strong sense of belonging um, seemed to do better and be better. Um, I didn't frame it as belonging then. Um, I think I was thinking about something called um, psychological safety, which is something that was termed, yes, um, in the 50s and then then re sort of hashed again by Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School. But I suppose in my mind, belonging is something which is much deeper. It goes further than inclusion. And very often in workshops we talk about inclusion we talked about exclusion but i felt that belonging was something that to me it felt that you didn't have to be at the table to belong but somewhere the inclusion felt that you had to be there present but belonging is a feeling that you don't have to be physically present and you can still belong. And it's a it's a very it's a feeling that is sustained over time. Um, and I think it's it's it, it's good for motivation, it's good for engagement, and that's what the research shows as well. But I think more than anything, I think it's good for it's just a good place to be in life where you belong. A basic human drive is connection. 
and uh, belonging. Mm -hmm. and I, but belonging mm -hmm. is a much stronger word. It's interesting that you chose that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I, I agree, you know, with what you said. It is stronger. It feels stronger. And I think what you said as well about the connection piece, that's so important. Yes. We're social animals. So here you are, you're now executive coach. You're now uh, talking with people all over the world about their uh, desires to be a leader. Now I'm gonna ask you a really simple, basic question, okay? And I'm asking because some people really do not get this. If it's a professional organization and people are hired to do a job, why in the world would it matter whether they feel like they belong or not? Mm. Very interesting question. And then it's a good question, whether it seems obvious or not. I have to say, first of all, the world is changing. And I think about the context where I live in Switzerland. I've been here for 30 years. 30 years ago, your private life was here and your professional life was there. There was a separation. That doesn't happen anymore. There isn't this sense of community. Um, people go less to church or to other religious um, gatherings. So work life has become very important. And belonging as, as, as a result is extremely important in professional life. And to the extent that non-belonging, the, re the research that I did and what I discovered just by talking to people has so many detrimental effects, not just on performance, on emotional well-being, physical well-being, on burnout, on how they show up, how they leave a legacy. Okay, so why does that matter if the purpose of the organization is to get something done and the purpose of the individual is to fulfill a task? Why does how I feel even matter as long as I can do my job? Um. I think it matters because is the you know I think Deloitte, McKinsey, and EY Ernst Young have all done research. Belonging has a definite impact on performance, so it does matter if you're thinking about numbers purely from an empirical, purely from a profit and loss. It matters because people perform better when they feel have higher belonging. You can keep talent. That's another area where belonging comes into the mix. The new generation coming want to be part of something. They want to feel part of um, whether it's a community, an organization, a team. So again, belonging becomes very important if you want to retain the talent. So there is definitely, it's definitely a hard skill. It's a hard skill. Okay, so there is, so you're saying belonging is good for the individual, mental health, 
uh, well-being, all of that good mm. stuff, and belonging is good for the organization in terms of being able to retain people because people want to feel that they matter and they want to feel mm. that they feel connected to others. So it's mm. good for the organization and for the individual. Okay. Absolutely. So now before you made a distinction between psychological safety and belonging, help us understand that difference. And you also in that and include, so help, let's start off with psychological safety and belonging. Help us understand that difference. So in my, in my mind, the, the psychological safety is where you are part of a team uh, or part of a group or a family or a community and you are not worried about making a mistake or you're not worried about being judged there is a safety an emotional psychological safety you feel about being your true self your authentic self um, and i and i often um, use the the example of um there could be a conflict but when there's psychological safety, you keep talking. You know, it's not, we, we don't break the bond, we keep talking. Okay. Now, inclusion, to, in my mind, is when people feel part of something. They are, they might not feel the safety, but they're included. So you are added to the list. You are given a seat at the table. Belonging, um, for me, is something which is about being your authentic self, not necessarily being physically present, but knowing that there is always that seat at the table. I feel that there's something, it's a different, it's a deeper level than psychological safety. It's almost like the safety and the, the, the inclusion, the safety part is there, it's a given. And then you have the third layer, which is the deepest layer, which is belonging. And I, and I stress the, the fact that I think so strong is having a sense of belonging that you don't need to physically be there. And, you know, if you think about our lives now, and I did this research pre-COVID, I think it's quite telling. Telling in what way? How important belonging is in our organizations because we are not seeing each other. Because we're not physically close. Right. Okay. So the 11 year old kid whose friend turned on him, her, overnight flat turned out, she lost inclusion. She no longer felt part of that friendship. She lost psychological safety. He called her a name. There was no, he excommunicated her. He uh, banned him, banned and didn't, she was no longer safe. And she lost belonging. In, the, in that circle, the, the, that network of friendship of the two people. So she mm. all three. Mm. Of those three, which do you 
think you felt the most intensely or can you tease it out? As we're speaking now, I think the thing I felt most um, intensely was the not belonging because I had a hard time belonging in my family. I always felt different. I always thought differently. Um, I always felt like a bridge between um, the in-group, the out-group, the other out-group. I always was trying to to be an ally. Um, so at school, the one or two relationships that I had, especially with this boy, because he was blonde and he was, you know, really fair-skinned. We were so different physically. Um, and it was almost a badge for me because it was almost to say, I mean, my, I never told my parents I was friends with him because at that, at that age and my parents were quite, that you wouldn't, you couldn't have boys as friends, no, no. but it was, it was a badge of honor Yeah, because the, here it was that this, sorry, go ahead. I've been accepted. I've been accepted. And, and also, um, you know what? They're not all the same. Oh. Because I heard that both sides all the time. The whites are like this, the blacks are like this, the Indians are like this, this, and I just, and we still hear it now. You know, we still hear what that, you know, he's very German or she's very Swiss. What does that mean? <laughs> um, and I just think, you know, we're never just one thing. We're so, we're so layered. There's so many layers to us. So let's go back to him. When he did that and turned on you, what happened to your budding belief that they are not all the same? Yeah, I started to think my parents were right. I, 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 I said to myself, maybe they were right. Maybe they did have it in for us. Maybe they did want to get rid of us. And and that was really hard. I can just really uh, hard. Yes. Okay, so let's come back to your book. Can you talk about examples from your coaching experience of where of belonging of someone who did not feel belonging? And then either what the organization did, somebody in the organization did that turned it around for them or something the person themselves did to increase their own sense of belonging. Yeah, unfortunately, I haven't got any stories where the organization changed, which is quite interesting. Um, it, the stories that I have and the people I interviewed, they there were two things that happened. Either they changed departments or they changed jobs. Whoa, so there's no hope? Once you're excluded, you either get out or? Uh, it's interesting, actually, that that's what I, that's, it, there are very few companies who really walk the talk. Um, this could be because um, it's a new concept. So for example, in where I live, we talk a lot about uh, diversity and inclusion 
and psychological safety and belonging. I'm not sure whether we really know what that looks like in an organization. Well, that sort of, I got, that, <laughs> that brought me down a bit because I, I, I'm a very, I'm optimistic as you well know. And so I like to believe, oh yes, it can, it can happen. Organizations can change, but you're saying your research has shown no. So if it, your advice to someone who is not feeling as though they belong is to just get out? No, my advice is not that. This is the choices that people made. Um, I think that I'm, a, I'm an optimist as well. Um, and I think also, you know, when, when I was interviewing the people, when I was interviewing the participants, um, there's a lot of hindsight. Very few people used a current example. So there are examples from the past. Um, and they themselves, a couple of them said, they wouldn't have framed it as not belonging or as not being included. They would have framed it as maybe something else. Um, but I think what's what's interesting is I don't think it's I don't think it's about giving up hope. I think it's perhaps educating and guiding organizations and leaders to really show what it's like to be an inclusive leader, to create real belonging. Because very often, um, when I get called into this work, um, now it's changing, but before the top leaders weren't doing this type of work, it was middle management, or it was um, people who didn't have power. But, you know, leaders are instrumental now. I mean, I, I I, I think you would agree in, in how they shape their oh, people. They're power, powerful and don't all, many don't even know how powerful they are. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true, Dr. Jean. They don't know how powerful they are. So I think there's not, it's not about, um, there's no hope. I just think we, they haven't been given the right tools. They don't know how to. And, I think when sometimes when you don't know how to have that conversation or you don't know what to say in a lot of organizations, we don't say anything at all. Yes. Okay. So I want you to talk to the person who feels like they don't belong. They have a sense. I really don't belong here. What can they do to either increase their belonging or to rectify the situation? And then I'm going to ask you to talk to the organizational leader who has a group of people and they're doing fine. And then there's the outlier. Mm. Mm. Okay, so let's start with the individual. So I would, um, I would, I would say to that person, Why don't you belong? Where don't you belong? How don't you belong? I would do some sort of audit or analysis. About they don't know me. Today. They don't recognize me. I go to work and people, are, they are friendly. They go off and have lunch together and I'm not invited. I don't know what I've done. 
could you could 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 you join them for lunch? Could you ask if you could join for lunch? Oh, I wouldn't dare. Why wouldn't you dare? Because if they say no, then I'm humiliated. And if they wanted me to come, they would have invited me. Are you the only one who doesn't go for lunch? Only one. And how long have you been working in the company? Four years. And four years you haven't been invited for lunch? No. I'm about to cry. <laughs> I, I, I literally have somebody in mind as we're talking, Sunidi. Horrible. Yes. And that is, when she told me, I think she had been there six years or so. When she told me that, yes. But this is what happened in the research. Some when people were talking, sometimes it just made me cry. That the suffering that goes on. Yes. Um, and the silent suffering. So um, what would you say to her? Let's just sum summarize. What yeah. I I would I would advise this person to talk to her boss and get the lead and get the boss to speak to the whole team, or get somebody from outside, depending on how much she wants i mean it's been going on for a long time for four years so maybe has she reached a threshold where enough is enough um i mean the four year the four years is quite significant why it's been going on for four years why they've excluded her and why she has allowed herself to or has she said something i don't know but do you see what i mean so i think it's about taking taking it out of of the box and, and and making it open with everybody and having a discussion about it okay so her yeah she she's assuming it's racism she's a black woman so i just put that on the table uh and there's uh the other groups are i think there's two uh, latinx most and the others are white and the mm. latinx have managed to fit in she has not mm. So she's assuming that's what it is. But what you're saying to her is you have to basically take charge of your destiny. In some ways, I guess, Dr. Jean, I think that's true. I think that um, the feeling of powerlessness is, is really... It, it's a really hard place to be. And I think that when you have the power of choice over your destiny, that is some that is something that could be a key to unlock um, maybe old situations or patterns to go forward. Um, and I think that's a horrible place to be that you're not invited for lunch for four years. So I would really encourage that person to take some of the power back and to put the fish on the table and ask the question okay and going to her boss uh and just saying what's happening here would be as a possibility okay so now the leader is watching yeah the, always go off to lunch watching this one person excluded thinking I don't have any right to govern someone's social life. 
they get to choose their friends. If they want to go have lunch together and it's not on work time, uh, I, I have no right to interfere. Mm. What yeah. would you That's say? Not, yeah. Well, it's not good enough, first of all. Um, I I, I, it's I, horrible. Yeah. It's I, th I think this goes back. Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm through. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I think it goes back to what you said about um, about leaders don't realize how much power they have. Um, and you know, one thing I sort of always a bit stunned that, you know, when you say, you know, you're a role model and they, and they're all, they're almost like, oh, am I? And I think this is where you sort of, I would say to the leader, you know, but what type of role model do you want to be? And how can you watch all this and not say it's your role to get involved it is you don't just you're not a leader from you're not a leader from nine to twelve and then from one to two when they're having lunch you stop being a leader so um, i i feel that a lot of responsibility and accountability is on that person actually because they have allowed a lot of this i totally agree with you the ability of people to say not mine not mine to do continues to astound me so yes you're not a leader you're not a part-time leader during the work day no no and and it's it's really the leader's responsibility this is this is something which i think is i've noticed in, in organizations that you know you there's a workshop you attend a workshop or you do some coaching and then the people above you just don't behave in in the I would say in the appropriate respectful way. This is about respect, and I just am, I I just feel so sometimes a bit disillusioned. Um, and this is where you know leadership starts with you. You if you are in a leadership position, you have the power and the influence and the authority. Use it for good. So what is one step or the first step, either one step or the first step, I don't care, that leader should do in that situation? Now, mind you, this person's going to be probably terrified because they're, they're trying to be a role model and they're stepping into uncertain waters. They've never intervened in something like this before. So what should they do? If they're really frightened and they don't feel apt enough or capable enough to have that conversation with the team alone i would get somebody external to have a conversation however um, that's not always e that's not always an option the only thing to do is to have an open conversation and not just one conversation because that's another thing is that i think sometimes leaders leaders and lead people in leadership positions it's a series of conversations um, with the consent of this person who's not who's not included i think the leader has to remain objective but also has to say that this is not okay this is not the way i want my team to behave this is not the way i want us to behave going forward and maybe the team needs to think about new rules team rules or 
new ways of working. Um, and I really wonder about this group going going off for lunch. How about their awareness about this one person not being invited? So let's say the leader literally what should the leader do? Convene a meeting of everybody and say y'all have yeah. been inviting her out to lunch. No, I don't think it has to be as brutal as that. I think it could be um, just taking the temperature, first of all, and letting, letting people speak and letting people letting people talk about the team and how they're feeling about the team members. And then he, he or she could say, I've noticed that you go for lunch and X is not invited. Can I ask why? Put it on because the Put it on the table because what can happen, Dr. Jean, is 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 the safe way is to have I'm going to have a one to one with this person, I have a one to one with that person, I have a one to one. But I always think, let it out, get it out in the open. We're all we're if it might feel really uncomfortable. It might feel like this is gonna this is getting worse than it's before it's getting better. I think it is the best way because then also as a leader, you are demonstrating we're having a team discussion. I'm not doing a one-to-one. -one. I'm not doing this private one-to-one -one discussion. I want to start as I mean to go on. We're, we're a group. We work together. Should the leader talk with the person ahead of time and say, I'm doing Yes. It? Yes, I would do that. Definitely. Definitely. And if the person that I give consent because they don't want to be humiliated, then what? Then I think it's hard. It's very difficult for the leader. I think the leader then maybe have to do the one-to-ones if he can't get, um, you know, give an op again, maybe give an option to that person. Shall we have a group meeting? And I'm happy to talk uh, on your behalf. Or would you prefer I have a one-to-one -one with them? That's the delicate part because it depends on how this person is feeling. Because that's another thing. When we talk about in the culture where we, you know, call it out and, and point it out and say it out and whatever, that's not always convenient for people. They don't want things to be out in the open. It could be dangerous. It could feel unpsychologically, it could feel psychologically unsafe. So, of course, he or she has to check with that person. And if that person says no, that's also interesting. Yes. I'm thinking of my of this person and someone who would let them go off for four years and do nothing would not want an open discussion. And that's that's the that's the real dilemma of it. So that person will have to figure out how to get stronger first to mm. be able to speak on their own behalf. Mm. 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 Yeah, that's the tragedy of this situation. Yes. Is that it's been it's been allowed in the system, it's been allowed. Um and and you know, I mean, I you know, you've got so much experience, you've seen this in lots of different setups and communities it happens in families it happens everywhere yes and this is where you know you need people to be a bit of a truth teller or at least say what's going on yes okay so we are out of time
It has been a delight. I'd like you to say the full name of your book, your name, the full name of your book. You said you have two, so let's promote both of them and where they can find you. And if someone wants to reach you, what should they do? Thank you, Dr. Jean. So my first book was called How to Get Out of Your Own Way. And it is for, for women who want to win. And it's specifically for women. Uh, it's actually a coaching book for women. And I wrote it for women who can't afford executive coaching because I'm often in a room full of white men um, changing now, but this book was specifically written for women in mind. And the second book, which is out at the, I think in June, is called The Power of Belonging. Both are available on Amazon, uh, I think uh, Book Depository and other, other sites. And if you want to reach me, I'm always happy to, to connect. Uh, it is Sunita, S-U-N-I-T-A dot semi, S-E-H-M-I at Walk the Talk, W-A-L-K-T-H-E-T-L-T-A-L-T. Start again. You can email me on, you can email me um, at Sunita, S-U-N-I-T-A dot semi s e h m i at walk the talk w a l k t h e t a l k dot c h dot c h okay and we'll put this we always have high highlights and so we'll put this in the highlights your uh your email address and this has been wonderful this has been informative and uh, it's gotten me thinking now about the situations where I know that I could do a better job of speaking up on behalf of people who might not feel that they're belonging. So, and so I thank you for that. Thank you, Dr. Jean. It's such a pleasure talking to you. You know how much I admire you. So thank you so much for saying that. Well, thank you. <laughs>